Good morning, and welcome back to staying ahead of the crypto of the staying ahead of the curve, crypto regulation and competitiveness. We just heard a fireside chat with Senator Haggerty, where he talked about the need for the United States to remain competitive in the digital asset space. And now we're going to talk about stablecoins. Stablecoins, with their reduced volatility compared to other types of cryptocurrency, have a total global market cap of approximately $124 billion, with approximately $122 billion of that market cap being held in dollar-denominated stablecoins. Usually, several big-name crypto companies come to mind when thinking about stablecoins. Circle, Paxos, Tether. But it's not just crypto-native companies making headlines in stablecoins these days. PayPal launched a U.S. dollar stablecoin on August 7th, and Visa made headlines this week extending its stablecoin settlement capabilities. Often viewed as an easier nut to crack than regulation of crypto markets, stablecoin legislation advancing in the House Financial Services Committee ended up drawing more political controversy than the market regulation legislation. And while stablecoins may present more finite legal questions for regulation, their existence and growth raise a lot of questions about regulation of money and payment systems, hot-button issues for sure. As stablecoin regulation advances in other countries, what should happen in the United States? And does an unclear regulatory regime in the U.S. ultimately threaten the status of the U.S. dollar? Let's turn to our experts to hear more on our panel entitled Stablecoins, the Dollar, and Regulation. I'm pleased to introduce the moderator for this panel, Leo Schwartz, who is a reporter covering crypto and regulation at Fortune. Leo? Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm very excited for this panel. I told Jennifer a couple weeks ago, but I really could not have imagined a better topic for a panel right now. I think stablecoins are the most interesting topic in both crypto and financial regulation. As she mentioned, we've seen a lot of progress when it comes to legislation. Stablecoins are often front of mind for politicians. At the same time, it seems like we're also leagues away with actually passing any regulation. Uh, the White House seems to be blocking efforts Lawmakers are dragging their feet. And then meanwhile, you see Tether, the wildcat stablecoin based offshores that is still leading the market. So it's a great time to be joined here by this expert panel who can offer very different perspectives on where we're at with stablecoins and also why a general audience, people outside of crypto should care about stablecoins. Uh, I'm joined here by Julie Hill, who's a professor at the University of Alabama School of Law, an expert on banking and financial regulation, I know has some very interesting perspectives on the role of the Fed with stablecoins, maybe some conflicts of interest there. Uh, Neil Maitra, who's with Wilson Sonsini, uh, and also was at everyone's favorite agency, the SEC, as a senior special counsel uh, and uh, an expert when it comes to crypto. So again, very excited to hear your views on how regulation can move forward there. Zaya Masari from LightSpark, uh, which is building payment infrastructure on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Uh, so again, a really unique perspective there on how payments can work with crypto and how crypto can facilitate the future of money. And then last, Corey Thane, of course, from Circle, the leading stablecoin company in the US, uh, developer of USDC. Uh, so it's great to have that perspective of someone who is working every day on stablecoins uh, and also obviously Circle is a leader of pushing regulation and talks about oversight for it in the US. So I think this will be a great panel, lots of different opinions here to discuss. Uh, I think to start off, everyone's gonna give a few minute statement uh, basically on you know, what their view on stablecoins is, why we should care, what we're looking at moving forward. I also wanna mention the last 15 minutes, we're gonna have a Q&A uh, for people both in the audience, uh, you can I think there'll be access to mics. Uh, and then for anybody tuning in, uh, you can enter questions on the website, on social media, on YouTube, Facebook, and the platform formerly known as Twitter. Uh, please use the hashtag CatoEcon, uh, and I'll give a reminder again at the end of the panel. Um, so Corey, maybe we can start off with you. Uh, again, I, I think everyone in this audience is probably not a crypto native, maybe doesn't even know really what stablecoins are. So I think it'd be great to get an overview on why stablecoins matter, why people should actually care about them, and why it's important to regulate them moving forward. Yeah, thanks, Leo, and great to be here. Um, 
this is a, an opportune time. I agree with everything you started with, Leo. Um, I think this is the most interesting topic in financial regulation right now. Uh, Circle just uh, celebrated our 10th anniversary and our 5th anniversary of launching USDC, uh, which is our flagship product. Um, why people should care. Um, we are trying to make money as easy to move as sending an email. So when you send an email today, you don't worry about whether uh, if you have Gmail and your friend has Hotmail, whether it's going to arrive. Uh, and you don't worry about whether uh, sending an email to Europe is going to take seven days and cost you money, right? Uh, you expect that it will arrive instantaneously. We're essentially changing the form factor of a dollar and putting it on the internet so that it moves faster, cheaper, and then also has a feature that is not available today with um, you know, our electronic money that's stored in Oracle databases, which is programmability, uh, which has huge uh, potential features to wring out costs uh, from the system and, and cut out uh, middlemen. So that's why you should care. We have settled $11 trillion worth of transactions in those five years. $4.5 trillion um, happened in 2022. So this is a heavily used instrument uh, for cross-border payments where it has huge advantages over like the correspondent banking system that exists today. Um, it's a wonderful store of value, uh, particularly in countries where uh, there is huge demand for dollars and they can't get them because they don't have banks. Many of these folks might not have... Um, uh, well, what they all have is a cell phone, and they can essentially go, you know, to an exchange um, or, you know, get onto a personal wallet uh, a digital dollar. And that is good uh, to, for the extensibility and competitiveness and access to U.S. dollars, which is something that we want to promote right now. Um, Senator Haggerty spoke uh, very eloquently about the threats to the dollar. We have the BRIC BRICS countries, um, you know, uh, putting together a consortium to try to um, act, bypass SWIFT. We have China um, doing its uh, digital yuan. Um, these initiatives are uh, direct threats to the dollar um, at a time when it's already a smaller percentage of foreign exchange reserves than it was in 2015. In 2015, it was 66% of, of Forex. Today, it's 57% before all of these very concentrated efforts. So we think that putting um, dollars on the internet that are backed by really good assets, um, that are US-denominated assets, uh, is a way to sort of um, promote the dollar. Zai, maybe you want to go next. I could also give a more specific prompt. I don't know if everyone... No, no, I'm happy. I could talk about this for a very long time. <laughs> I'll, I'll control myself. Um, I'm going to uh, answer a slightly different question, however, than the one you asked, which is why should we care about stable coins? Instead, um, I myself am a veteran of the stable coin wars, I'll call them. Um, and so I'm going to instead answer a question, which is when did we start caring about stable coins, which directly leads to the why. Um, the world started paying attention to stable coins. In particular, I think what we're all talking about here are payment stable coins. That is, uh, stable coins issued by some central issuer backed by high quality liquid assets of the same denomination, usually dollars. Um, we started to care about this uh, in 2019 uh, with the very public uh, and flashy announcement by Facebook and at the time the Libra Association of a global dollar denominated or at the time a multi-currency uh, stable coin which evolved into a dollar denominated stable coin issued out of Switzerland and then issued out of the United States. Um, in that quixotic journey through financial regulation, I think a couple things became very clear. One is that um, the reason we care about stablecoins is because they are a new form of electronic money. We do not have this kind of electronic money now. We feel like we do, those of us who have bank accounts, because we can use uh, electronic systems provided by banks, bank consortia, and the federal government to move our money around. 
But stable coins are different because they are a form of non-credit money. They're fully backed by high-quality liquid assets, at least when well-regulated. And they settle by means of transfer of the stable coin themselves. You don't have to make a transfer and then your banks do all the settlement behind. That means it's the potential for a totally new instant retail gross settlement in, uh, instrument that does not exist today. That is not commercial dip bank deposits. I guess that could be CBDC, which we're not getting into. Um, but this was something new and something potentially concerning for lots of regulators because central banks are used to controlling money supply issued by commercial banks, um, e-money issuers, uh, uh, money transmitters in the United States. They're not used to this new kind of electronic money that's transferable peer-to-peer -peer on a public ledger. Um, I think that project was very scary to very, very many regulators in the United States and outside the United States, and I think we can all understand why. But I think it's really important at this moment to really think about is the regulatory approach in the United States the right one? Why is it the right one? Why isn't the right one? Because to my mind, this new form factor for money is inevitable, and we should do everything we can to promote it rather than um, be afraid of it. Well, I think um, let me let me start with a couple of caveats. Um, first, I think I would note that you know these are my views and not not the views of my organization. And frankly, given the speed of crypto, they may not be my views by the time we end. <laughs> so, so there's that. Uh, but the the second caveat I think is that I am very much in a minority as being a securities lawyer at, in in a panel full of payment experts. And so I will bring uh, obviously the the perspective of a securities lawyer. And the things we care about in many cases are very different from the things that payments experts care about. And I think you've heard from Zai and, and you've heard from Corey very important reasons as to why we should care about stable coins. I can tell you why I care about stable coins and that is a much narrower reason. I mean, you know, you've, you've, you've heard about uh, the fact that this is an extraordinarily potent payment mechanism and, and the fact that, you know, it can really be transformative in say high inflation economies, things like that. But if you care about crypto, and I certainly care about crypto, then I think stablecoins are vital for the continued flourishing of the crypto ecosystem. Without stablecoins, you don't have very good exchanges or, or you don't have uh, well-functioning exchanges. You, can, you sort of might want to go back to those days or might have to go back to those days where you're exchanging Bitcoin for ACH transfers of cash. And, you know, that can be extraordinary, extraordinarily slow mechanism compared to, compared to stablecoins. So, 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 that's why I would care about stablecoins, and it's a much narrower view, but it, and, and it probably doesn't uh, make it to the top five for, for, for people who care about stablecoins generally, but that is one of the, the more important reasons uh, I care. And the second thing I think that I would, I would mention here is that Zai asked, I think, the very important question of, like, is the U.S. regulatory approach correct? I'd ask a more fundamental question, what is the U.S. regulatory approach? Um, because I see in, in Europe a regulatory approach that I find extraordinarily onerous, one that, one that I think is, you know, hurts American interests because they don't even, they frankly uh, disadvantage USD-based stablecoins. But I'm, I'm worried that that will become the default because we don't have a regulatory response. If we are to have a regulatory response, we must, I think, understand what the boundaries of regulation are and what the boundaries of each regulator are. And for us to do that, I think the first question we have to ask are, you know, what do we mean by stablecoins? And I think we've had an ex extremely helpful definition about, you know, sort of the, the payment stablecoin, the idea of sort of a reserve-backed, you know, liquid reserve-backed sort of stablecoin. And, and we, have to, we have to distinguish that and protect that and sort of put that, you know, in a clear regulatory framework. And, and, and move it away from all the dross that surrounds it in terms of people who may call their products stablecoins but are actually doing very different things. So three things there. I think a definition of, of like what the product is, a definition of what the regulatory concerns should be, and, and, and sort of who the regulators should be. And then finally, I think settling on sort of what the broad regulatory approach to stablecoin is. So maybe the question I want to answer is, why you all should care about stable coins. Um, and to answer that question, I think we first need to think about who cares most about payments now. 
um, who is it that makes the payments on our legacy payment systems happen? And there are really, in the United States, two big groups. One is the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve primarily, and the other is your traditional banks, those banks that accept deposits, give you a debit card, let you write checks still if you would like to, um, magically get an ACH payment to your account, and also take your deposits and, and lend them out. And that's who provides the payment systems today. All the banks make the payments happen by using payment rails provided either by a consortium of really big banks, again, the banks, or by using payment rails provided by the Federal Reserve. And so if we leave development of the legal framework surrounding the payment system to the people who currently care about it the most, the Federal Reserve and traditional legacy banks, they will create a framework that is best for them. They will not create a framework that is best for everyone. For a framework to be good for everyone, everyone needs to have a voice in it. And that includes people who use payment networks, um, people who have good ideas for new technology, um, and people who care about consumers and their safety. And so um, I think that one of the tensions that we see as people start to talk about how to regulate stable coins is we hear these loud voices, but, but these new people, they are not subject to all the same regulation and they don't do all these great things that we traditional banks do. Well, that's true, but in part that's because they are conceived of differently. They don't lend, and so they don't have that risk that is present that we all know some borrowers don't pay back their loans, and so they probably ought to be treated differently. Um, but if you leave it up to the banks, they will figure out a way to make it better for them. Um, and I love banks, um, but I think that's one reason that we all need to have a voice in this. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of regulation, I want to start with the elephant in the room, uh, which I think is also helpful to think about competitiveness and why stablecoins matter in the U.S., and that elephant is Tether, of course, which is the $82 billion stablecoin that operates very shadowy nature offshores, no pretense of regulation or transparency, and yet has been rising in popularity over the last six months in comparison to circle in USDC or other options in the US, uh, which in the wake of the banking crisis in March has been decreasing in market cap. And I think there are a number of factors that play into that. One obviously is rising interest rates and the fact that a lot of people don't want to necessarily keep their money in zero uh, yield assets. Uh, but at the same time, there are obviously other factors. And I, I would like to get all of your perspective, I guess on, on two things, one of which is why you think Tether is winning the, the stablecoin wars right now, and then maybe more importantly, you know, what that means if the U.S. really loses out to a company like Tether, options like Tether. And Corey, maybe as <laughs> being from Circle, you can start off. Uh, Absolutely. I love that question. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Tether's $82 billion. They, they tweeted the other day that they have $72 billion in T-bills, which makes them a bigger T-bill holder than Mexico, uh, the UAE, uh, and Australia. Um, so for the United States uh, to not have any sort of handle over a company that big that is holding $90 million in cash to run an $82 billion stablecoin, which is woefully inadequate because you need to have cash to meet redemptions, right? That is a huge, huge oversight. And they've essentially gained by uh, telling the world, hey, we're open for business when they tweeted that they're not going to comply with OFAC sanctions um, after tornado cash. Um, coincidentally, uh, or not coincidentally, I should say, uh, their market cap has risen by uh, $16, uh, $16 billion since that time. So if you tell the world, hey, uh, we're not going to enforce like sanctions, where do you think the sanctions evaders between Russia and China are going to go? And where do you think uh, the people who want to buy fentanyl precursors uh, from China uh, for import into the United States 
are going to go. They have gone to tether. This is one of the primary reasons why we need to regulate now, and Congress should feel a deep sense of urgency. Circle has been founded as a regulation-first company, and we are regulated in the United States today. We have uh, money transmission licenses in every state that um, requires them. These are the same licenses that uh, PayPal and Venmo and Cash App are regulated under. But it would make sense for um, the federal government to speak uh, so that when the Bank of England uh, wants to call or the ECB, uh, that they don't have to call 50 different state regulators, right? Um, so I'll get into a little bit about what we like about some of the um, legislation that's out there. But the U.S. government should make it illegal. We already have a statute that makes it illegal to counterfeit dollars, right? Well, in our view, what Tether is doing today is counterfeiting dollars because they are going around the world telling everybody this is the digital equivalent of a dollar. They're trading on the dollar's good name. Yes, today they have a lot more T-bills than they had in the past, but go look at whatever their attestations are. Still 10% of those attestations are not um, uh, really disclosed. In the past, they've had Chinese commercial paper, long-dated, risky assets, and today they have Bitcoin in there. These are volatile assets that are illiquid. So when you combine that illiquidity of the backing assets and just $90 million in the bank and not complying with financial crimes uh, uh, precepts, that's, that's dollar counterfeiting. And it also casts serious doubt on what would happen if a whole bunch of people asked for their money back at the same time. Tether's uh, um, terms of service say that rather than giving you dollars back uh, for the dollar that you gave them, they can give you Bitcoin or they can give you, you know, whatever that commercial paper is. So huge, huge risk, um, and uh, the U.S. needs to get its arms around it. Is that you? Yeah, I'm leaning in here. Uh, so look, nobody should be surprised about what's going on with Tether, right? There's clearly a real use case. Some of it might be for uh, less than savory purposes or downright bad purposes against the national interest of the United States. But nobody here should be surprised about this. I'll just note that maybe now three or four years ago, both the New York Attorney General and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission settled fraud cases against Tether, finding them what for Tether is just a little bit of money um, in the low to mid millions of dollars, and just required Tether to abide by law that they're already subject to. When a company like Tether is operating globally and sees that kind of what I would call wrist slap reaction from U.S. regulators, U.S. law enforcement, um, I'm not sure why there's any surprise about the steps that Tether has taken to grow its business in the United States and outside the United States. Can I add just one thing to that? Because uh, <laughs> you brought something to mind. If, if you... If, you, if they were constituted as a bank, they'd be the 35th largest bank in the United States. They have 60 employees, okay? 60 employees. Comerica Bank, which has about the same amount of assets, has uh, approaching seven or 8,000. You have to ask yourself, like, what risk measures are in place, okay? So Circle, we have uh, between 125 to 150 people in compliance out of our 900. Um, we bend over backwards to do everything the right way. With 60 people, there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know that I have a lot to add in terms of data, but I will just say you know, a couple of paradoxes. I, it's pretty interesting just uh, adding on to what, what Corey just said and what Zai said. You know, this is not Tether's first brush with the law. In fact, there have been multiple rushes with the law, and there have been some, you know, self-declared sort of uh, omissions, like you know, the, the fact that the results were nowhere near where they, were, where they were supposed to be a couple of years ago. And so we have had these happen multiple times. You contrast that with a company like Circle, which, you know, if memory serves me right, actually tried to go public at one, one point or, 
you know, filed a test for with, with the SEC and you know, made fulsome disclosures on the things they were doing, financials and all of that, you've got a company like Circle where you can literally look inside and see the workings, and you've got a company like Tether, which is a black box. And people still choose Tether, or many people are still choosing Tether. What kind of people would choose that kind of company? What is the paradox? There is a paradox there that you, know, you, you, are, you, you like the product so much that you are willing to overlook uh, the fact that you li know literally nothing about the issuer, and you're taking a huge risk on the credibility, the solvency, the, the legality of the issuer. That, to my mind, is a massive paradox. I mean, I think if you, if you consider the people that, that may be using Tether for, for some of the reasons that, uh, that, that Zai and Corey uh, mentioned, you know, it's, that's probably a large number of them, but there's also a large, uh, another group of them, and are they just using it because other people are using it, or do they see advantages uh, to the product? My, my suspicion, backed by no data, is that it may just be the former. It just, it's just, you know, after a certain point, you're just seeing maybe network effects. Okay, so Tether's not that great. Um, <laughs> so what do we expect will happen long-term? If we really think there's this much risk, then that suggests that the market will correct. But we're worried, right? Because if the market corrects, if we all figure this out, if Tether can't redeem when people want it, what happens? Um, this is the classic bank run, but with nothing behind it, right? And so this brings us back to the question of what we think the regulations surrounding these products would best look like. Um, and I think that one thing that I'd like to throw out there is that it doesn't look like punishing people after the fact when they've done something wrong. That's not a very effective way to have people build good staple payment rails. Um, so finding the company that does a poor job managing its risk, holding reserves, complying with OFAC and anti-money laundering laws, punishing them after the fact is not our ideal form of regulation. Um, and it's not that we don't have enforcement tools. We do. Uh, the United States, the SEC in particular, really loves to um, extend its jurisdiction beyond the U.S. borders. It's not that we don't have those tools or we couldn't use them. But when we try to regulate that way, after something's gone wrong, it often results in the people that are harmed not being made whole. What we really like is for the payment systems to be built in a sustainable, fair, honest way from the ground up. And that requires clear guardrails. Yeah, I mean, obviously regulation by enforcement is a major theme of today. Uh, and I will say when I talk to traders and, and people in crypto abroad, outside of the US, and especially in emerging markets, one of the reasons they say they turn to Tether is because they're afraid of products from the US, especially USDC, which has that association with the US government, largely because of its efforts to be in compliance. I know Circle CEO Jeremy Allaire has called this a, a flight from safety, uh, where basically you've seen a lot of people outside the US turn to the options that seem the most removed from the US because of that crackdown that we've seen post FTX, which is maybe fair, maybe not fair. Um, but with that in mind, I mean, looking at that flight from safety that we're seeing when it comes to stable coins. I'm curious for all of your perspectives on, and maybe this is an impossible question, but why you think it's been so difficult to pass stable coin legislation in the US or what it would take to convince lawmakers that this is something that's necessary to pass. And Julie, maybe you're the least biased on, on this question, so we can start with you. Oh, everybody has bias. <laughs> um, it's just whether they'll tell you about it or not, right? <laughs> um, I get to play mine closer to the vest as an academic. Um, look, you have uh, widely divergent views of, of what uh, stable banking and payment systems look like. Um, so you hear wildly divergent things like stable coins ought to be completely divorced from any sort of lending. They ought to just be 
you know, trust that hold their reserves and nothing else. And then on the other hand, you hear people saying, oh no, the only people who could possibly do this safe, safely are banks. And they take deposits and lend them out. And so um, part of this is that we have parties that are very far apart. Another part of it is that we have technology that is developing rapidly. Uh, um, and that means that not all of the members of Congress uh, have a fulsome understanding of what stable coins are. And then you know, its association with crypto makes it seem risky or dirty in some way. And I think we're still moving past crypto being something that's just for criminals. I've got to agree with that. I think that the association with crypto has hurt stablecoins and hurt stablecoins' chances in Congress. I'm, I'm an optimist, and so I'm assured by the fact that, you know, uh, Representative McHenry's bill has a sort of cleared committee, and it got a few Democratic votes as well, so it seems like there's at least some uh, support for it. Um, I think that, you know, two things. One is, of course, you know, the association with crypto, historically, the fact that some crypto operators have used stablecoin, have, have even issued their own stablecoin. I think Binance had, had its own stablecoin, for example. But, but I think the other thing is there is not agreement on, on what stablecoins really are and, and the purpose they serve. I mean, they think different people see in stablecoin different things or, or think that stablecoins should be bounded in different ways. Can there be an interest payment? Based on, you know, can stablecoins pay out interest? I mean, yeah, folks would say, well, if it's really a stablecoin, then should it ever pay out interest? Might be one. Might be one question. You know, the other question sort of might be, well, what kind of what kind of reserves and what kind of auditability should it have? Could it be tied to another investment product? Could it be exchangeable for another investment product? So, drawing the boundaries around stablecoin, I think, and and to that extent, defining a stablecoin, I think, it attracts an extraordinary amount of um, disagreement. And I think one of the one of the concerns for for the legislative process is that people are concerned to sort of make sure that the regulators that they think should have jurisdiction are not denied jurisdiction, that the regulatory boundaries that they think should be in place are not eroded, that, you know, the SEC should not have its jurisdiction denied. I think the SEC could do with some jurisdiction denial uh, once in a while, but, uh, but, but, or, that, or that the banking regulators take their rightful place in sort of regulating stablecoin. Those boundaries, I think, are what's really being tested in the, in the legislative debate. I think we've been agreeing too much with each other. <laughs> Can we uh, let's make it a little spicier? No, look, I think uh, I'm going to disagree a little bit on some of the points um, that you made, not because I think they're wrong, but I think um, we can sharpen this a little bit. I think actually on the substance of payment stablecoin regulation, um, congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans actually generally agree, right? There's a couple principles that everybody's been talking about, again, since 2019, maybe even before. One is that payment stablecoin should be fully reserved, backed one-to-one -one with highly liquid assets, probably needs to be a capital buffer as well, need to be redeemable from the issuer, reserve should be transparent, and there needs to be some sort of supervision of the stablecoin issuer. I think what's really at stake at the moment, and this is a particularly acute issue in the United States, and also explains why the United States is behind other major jurisdictions in passing, or at least moving forward on stablecoin legislation. This is now purely a jurisdictional fight. This is a jurisdictional fight in this moment, the, uh, Fights shift a little bit, but in this moment, it's a fight between um, the administration and the Fed, on the one hand, who wants to ensure that all stablecoin issuers are primarily regulated by the Federal Reserve, on the theory that the Federal Reserve regulates payment activities for the reasons that Julie described before, versus um, a second uh, set of stakeholders that says, no, the Federal Reserve doesn't need to be the primary uh, supervisor of stablecoin issuers. We can do stablecoin regulation just like we've done bank regulation in the United States for uh, time immemorial, which is states can charter stablecoin issuers and maybe with some federal oversight, just like we have for state chartered banks 
state chartered trust companies, and why is this any different or any more risky than our dual banking system that regulates banks that engage in maturity transformation, liquidity transformation. And I think that is fundamentally the maybe the only real disagreement left between different stakeholders and different parts of our political system in terms of what stablecoin legislation should be. And I think it's really important that we're clear about that. This is not about more lax or more severe regulation of stablecoins anymore. I think people generally agree on what payment stablecoin legislation should look like. It's really um, who gets to have oversight authority over stablecoin issuers. Yes, and uh, this debate, the technology is new, but this goes back like 200 years, right? Like, this is a federalism issue, uh, and it's a jurisdictional issue. Uh, like, go watch the play Hamilton, right? Like, they've been <laughs> fighting over state and Fed oversight for a long time. But what I will say, um, and why I have optimism that we're going to get something done, is... Um, you know, the President's Working Group on Financial Markets put something out two years ago. For us, that feels like an eternity, but we just had a bill go through House Financial Services and be voted out of committee with uh, bipartisan support. Um, it could have been a little bit more, uh, but there was bipartisan support um, within that span of two years. There's a lot of um, issues out there that take 10 years to get through a committee, right? On top, and, and the McHenry um, and Waters work together was, was very, very good. They came very, very close to having, um, you know, a sort of full stack deal with the White House and the Fed and so on, um, and the Treasury. Uh, as I understand it, conversations continue. People haven't given up on this. And then there's also an interesting bill um, over in the Senate. Um, Lummis Gillibrand bill is... Uh, big and it addresses all of crypto market structure and I'm going to set that aside but the stablecoin piece of the bill um, can be pulled out of there and it uh, uh, tracks pretty closely to the dual banking system it would essentially say um, you can get licensed through the OCC or you can get licensed through the states but the Federal Reserve will be uh, involved uh, in both processes, because if you go the state route, you would have to uh, essentially become a, a member of the Fed, so a state member bank rather than a state non-member bank. So the Federal Reserve would be included in, in uh, both of those uh, pathways. So interesting that there's a pretty good bill over in the Senate, and we have a bill that is being improved as we speak that has been voted through House Financial Services. So um, I in my discussions, get the sense that the Fed does want a deal, the White House wants a deal, the Treasury wants a deal. Now, we all just have to kind of put it together um, with the specific language, and, and um, you know, I'm hopeful. So maybe we can find some disagreements here. I know regulation may not be the spiciest topic, but obviously there was a lot of drama. Uh, as you mentioned, House Financial Services, it, it seemed like McHenry and Waters had reached a deal and then at the 11th hour, I think reports are, maybe the White House called. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to see stablecoin legislation come through. It could be about state versus federal pathway. There's been some reports it was about Fed versus OCC oversight. Uh, but clearly, the bigger issue is there's a lot of disagreement for what regulation should actually look like. Uh, and I think there's some disagreement here, too, on what ideal regulation might look like. So... Uh, in, in each of your ideal worlds, what, what would stablecoin regulation look like? Julie, maybe we can start with you. Well, I'm still uh, noodling on, uh, on this, I, you know, so I'm going to answer a different question. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot less um, convinced that the Fed wants to deal than you are. Um, and the reason that I'm less convinced that the Fed wants to deal and wants to be cooperative in this space is how they have dealt with applicants for Federal Reserve master accounts. Um, so one of the examples is 
um, Custodia in Wyoming, um, the home state of Senator Lummis of Lummis Gillibrand. Um, and they want to basically be a cryptocurrency custody bank with a uh, stable coin that allows payments. And they applied to be a member bank, and the Fed says no, um, because of risk, risk, risk. Now, maybe custodia is sort of uniquely risky in this space, um, but it certainly read a bit like crypto is just too risky and we don't want to do it. And then on the heels of after saying that Custodia couldn't be a member bank, they also um, denied access to the Federal Reserve's payment rails and there's litigation ongoing. Now there are a host of other sort of payments type firms that are suing the Federal Reserve over their denial or slow walking of uh, master account applications. Right, These master accounts would give these entities access to the Federal Reserve's existing payment rails, so it would allow them to convert their um, stable coins into U.S. dollars more easily. Um, and I think that if I wanted to see evidence that the Fed was acting in good faith, I'd want to see them handling these um, account requests um, Differently, Right now, the way they handle them is we have complete discretion. We don't have to tell you anything. We can sit on them forever, you know, years, five years. Uh, and there's no way for you to appeal. And we can close your account whenever we feel like it. That's not a government agency dealing in good faith. Sorry. That's great. Well, um... On a more on a more sunny note, I, I think the I think the McHenry bill actually is a good thing, and I, I I agree with a lot of lot of the things that are in there. I think it also represents, as I said, you know, the fact that the mainstream there is mainstream agreement on what a permitted payment stablecoin or payment stablecoin should be, uh, and I think that bill represents that. It also does two or three other important things. It says, for example, that you can have an interest-bearing stablecoin. It, it doesn't rule it out. Uh, it also, I think, says that. It's not a security, so it draws the jurisdictional line very clearly. And if you see Lummis Gillibrand, it also does something similar. It largely takes jurisdiction away from overstable coins from the SEC, but it says that the CFTC, which is going to, in that bill, uh, sort of supervise crypto exchanges, will have jurisdiction over stable coins to the extent they're being transacted on a CFTC-regulated entity, which is kind of a common-sense point. Like, you know, the, the SEC, for example, is not the principal regulator of cash, but it can regulate cash when it's being handled by a broker-dealer or it's being handled by an exchange, for example. And so I think that's a common-sense approach that Lummis Gillibrand takes, which I think is a, is a good one. It says that a stablecoin is not primarily uh, and, you know, a, a thing that should be regulated by the CFTC or the SEC, but to the extent it's being dealt with by a registered entity, you, know, you can have some limited jurisdiction over it, over it, over it. But otherwise, I think the McHenry bill, I think, I, I think if it get, gets passed, I'd be pretty happy. Ideal stablecoin regulation is just regulation that's clear, honestly. I think those of us who are in the trenches, you know, focus on a lot of the details of this, right, and think about what it means for different business models and the rest. Um, and look, when an industry is brand new, um, it's changing quickly, that's a time when it's not a problem at all if uh, there isn't specific regulation, regulations are not clear because it actually gives room for innovation. When an industry becomes mature enough, and here by industry I narrowly mean payment stable coins, um, the most important thing are clear rules of the road so that users of stable coins in this instance issuers of stable coins, businesses that want to accept them, financial intermediaries that want to use them for settlement purposes, aren't scared, that, uh, to use a crypto phrase, they're going to get rugged by regulators, right? They need clear, stable regulation that sets the rules of the road for a good amount of time so that they can build on it. And here, you know, in the end, whether there's a state path, a federal path, both a state and federal path, like, let's just get that sorted out. Like, Congress can decide these things, and then the industry can move on, because 
that is functionally what's happening outside the United States. We have new legislation in Singapore. We have uh, legislation in the EU. We've got legislation coming out of the Middle East. Um, for decades and decades, you know, certainly during the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath, the U.S. was um, a regulation maker and the rest of the world was a regulation taker. Um, that's not the case anymore here, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, and just to add to that point, think about it. Th this, is an, this is regulating the U.S. dollar. So, like, other countries are writing the rules for the dollar, that is unacceptable. And that's why I think, actually, Julie, that the Fed does want uh, a deal because they don't like to see that. And some things that have come out um, from them have, have been a bit disappointing. But the Fed is not a monolith. And Jay Powell has testified before Congress that he sees stable coins as a new form of money, which is why hope springs eternal um, with me. Uh, but, but I think... Um, Zai is also right. Like, my mom always told me, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think we're falling into that trap a bit right now while the rest of the world moves on. But what I will note is that if we do nothing in the next four or five months and we're in uh, election season in 2024, we may not get legislation for two years or, you know, God knows how long. During that period of time, We'll not only have Japan writing the rules for stable coins, which they've already done, and the EU writing those rules, but the UAE potentially. Um, Singapore and Hong Kong will almost certainly do it in early 2024. And you could end up with um, Tether being a $250 billion financial institution. Maybe they'll add 20 people. Um, so, you know, it'll be 80 people running $250 billion. That is not a position the United States should be in. So people need right now to think about, you know, how many fine points do I need to win in these negotiations? Um, uh, or, you know, can we set down our, our um, disagreements on some of these finer points uh, and get to a deal? I know we don't want to make CBDCs a, a major theme in the, in the discussion, but I do want to ask about it. Because we are seeing, I think, in the wake of stablecoin regulation, non-crypto companies entering the space. You see PayPal launching their stablecoin alongside Paxos. Obviously, the Fed is exploring CBDCs. They have FedNow, for instant payment services. A lot of other governments around the world are exploring central bank digital currencies. Uh, I'm curious from all of you if you think that CBDCs can exist alongside stablecoins or if they're in direct conflict with each other. Corey, maybe we can go back that? to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we don't think a CBDC in the United States is the right pathway. We think um, uh, Dante Desparte, our chief strategy officer, has a pretty apt analogy. The FAA sets really high standards for jet engines, and then they let Boeing and Lockheed compete to make the best jet engine. And personally, I would not probably fly if the FAA was the party making the jet engine, right? Um, so I, I don't think CBDC is the right pathway. Um, that being said, uh, Undersecretary uh, Liang at the Treasury has made some interesting comments about um, a CBDC potentially being a backing asset for um, a stablecoin. So that's interesting, and we're open to you know exploring ideas. Um, I think you know the rest of the world, Europe says they're going to launch one um, in the next five years, um, and then China has theirs. It's in the hands of 300 million people today. It's not been um, hugely successful yet, but they move very incrementally, but deliberately. It's now being used in one city on cross-border trade. Um, they're starting to ask, you know, some of the African countries that they do a lot of business with to use the digital yuan. That's a pretty scary proposition when you think about um, just from a freedom perspective, right? Like, uh, the programmability of money under the right rules in the United States can be a fantastic thing. But programmability of money uh, in the hands of uh, an autocratic regime uh, can be a very bad thing. They could shut your money off if you, you know, they don't want you to buy alcohol. Or they want to speed up consumption um, because they see a downturn coming. They just say, your money disappears at the end of the month. 
We think the best way to counter that is with private sector solutions from the United States. So legislation would create a great deal of competition. Um, I think PayPal, you know, we're glad that they're in the market. It's exciting. It shows that this is, has real utility. They're going to be a tough competitor, but like, let's, let's do this. And it typically works for the United States when we have clear rules that the private sector um, innovates. Um, I, I think in the United States, I personally, personally am just extremely skeptical that a CBDC has any legs, um, largely because, you know, as Julie has noted, the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve banks aren't all that excited to be banks for many, many, many kinds of financial institutions, uh, transmogrifying that into a system of retail banks uh, where individuals have some kind of direct or pass-through account with the Federal Reserve to hold CBDCs just seems um, a bit magical thinking and an extreme set of uh, transformational reforms that would need to happen in the United States. And I think, I don't know, I've kind of been joking that the Fed um, would be really smart just to rebrand FedNow as like, Fed CBDC now and be done with it. Um, but, but I think that's the kind of um, CBDC regime, if any, that we would see in the United States. Um, outside the United States, you can see why a CBDC might make more sense. And I agree with Corey on this one. I think the US commercial banking system is the issuer of retail money. Right, Almost all the money we hold today is not actually dollars. It's just claims against commercial banks. And I'm not sure why we would think about stable coins um, as being a bad idea if it's just a claim against a regulated stable coin issuer. And that private sector solution can be the American response to the growth of DCEP and the digital yuan in China and other initiatives. I mean, uh, I'll be quiet in a second, but you know, maybe a wholesale CBDC makes sense so that the U.S. can plug into non-U.S. jurisdiction CBDC systems. Like, I, I can see where that makes sense. I think that probably already exists, uh, to be honest. But I just I don't I don't see a, I don't see that world. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see a CBDC on the horizon uh, anytime soon. I, I've been hearing about the CBDC for the last four years, you know, in the United States. And, Nothing yet, so uh, I don't think those even those uh, discussions have advanced very significantly as far as I can see. But the one thing I will say is, sidestepping the question a little bit, I think it it is more important to me to see how um, some governments, the EU in particular, are using the stablecoin concepts to support their existing fiat currency, not even CBDCs. So you know, MICA, for example, uh, extraordinarily privileges EU-backed or. Euro-backed stablecoins. There is actually, a, I think, a transaction cap for for non-Euro-backed uh, stablecoins. So, if you're a USD uh, USD-backed stablecoin, there is a limit on how many transactions you can you can actually do under MICA. And so, this, to my mind, is is really a, a bigger threat in the sense of like the regulation of stablecoins to advance existing fiat interests or ex existing fiat currencies. Uh, and I think that's where perhaps more focus is warranted. So. So with CBDC, the devil really is in the details, right? And what, what we're talking about when we talk about a CBDC. Um, so if we're talking about some sort of wholesale product that is just offered to banks, that is not a huge step from what we've had since basically the creation of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has been accepting deposits from banks or some subset of banks since it was created. And simply providing different or new services to banks is not a huge step for the Federal Reserve. And I think this is why um, you hear some sort of conspiracy theory uh, things about how Fed now is the CBDC and, you know, it's going to lead to the Fed controlling everything we do. Um, yeah, I think that that's a little overblown. I think Fed now is just a slightly faster ACH payment system that is a lot like the ACH payment system that we've been using since the 80s. Um, but that's different than saying we might be thinking about a retail product 
where individuals or businesses or anyone or maybe some subset of favored folks get accounts with the Federal Reserve. And I think that that is um, politically difficult for reasons that have been noted um, and also... Um, I don't see the Federal Reserve really wanting to be, or the government more broadly, wanting to be in the business of saying, no, you, Joe, <laughs> you don't use your account in a good way. We don't like you. I mean, I just think that um, is all sorts of problem. And so um, I think that most government officials in their heart of hearts would say, we would rather bank some other entity, anyone but us, be the bad guy. So I have one more quick question before we go to the Q&A portion, and I, I want to end on a, a slightly pessimistic note, but it, it does seem uh, unlikely at this point, I think, that stablecoin legislation is going to be passed before the election. Uh, and even if it does get passed, it could be years before it's implemented. Um, and, and with that in mind, I mean, when you look at Circle and the DPEG event in March, I think a lot of it was because Circle isn't able to have access to the Fed or doesn't necessarily have a, or had a safe place it could hold deposits. So it's at the risk of the banking system. Uh, so what happens if regulation doesn't get implemented? How can stablecoins move forward in the U.S. in, in that possible reality? Yeah, so, I mean, legislation um, is vital uh, to open up all sorts of partnerships, right? Like you could see Amazon taking stable coins, reducing costs for themselves and consumers, um, uh, and the list goes on. But even without legislation, I mean, we just uh, announced a new partnership with Spotify or uh, Shopify, right? Uh, Visa just announced that they're going to settle transactions using USDC. Um, PayPal entered the market. So I think the market will continue to move forward um, and kind of coalesce around the standards that we're already following, you know, high reserving redemption disclosure, um, transparency, uh, good operational risk management. So we will continue on. You also don't know what's going to happen with uh, some of the, you know, I mean, again, Tether, right? Like, who knows what's going to happen given the way that they're operating the company. But the good players um, who already see value are going to keep making partnerships um, and, and keep going down this path. It's just the U.S. government won't have that same level of um, clarity being provided to the market and, frankly, the same sort of, like, enforcement and regulatory and supervisory authority that they could otherwise have. It's a missed opportunity, right? Missed opportunity, yeah. yeah. I mean, stable coins are legal, you know? Uh, they will persist, but it's a matter of how competitive we want to make ourselves, I think. Yeah, not much to add, add to that. I, I will just say, I think, on Corey's point, I mean, if you don't, if, if there is no regulation in the near future, It'll just continue, and I think you're going to see some kind of coercion. Is part of the government. Then we have the regional reserve banks who like to tell everyone that they're just private entities owned by the banks in their region that are members. Um, and so they say they don't have to follow the Administrative Procedure Act and that they don't have to act like they're part of the government. And then you have the Open Market Committee, which is partly people from the Reserve Bank and partly people from the board who are setting monetary policy. They've got so much going on. Um, I guess I wouldn't be the first academic to say the system of regulation for financial services we have in the United States is rather... Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of a nice word, but we have so many financial regulators, um, often with overlapping jurisdictions. It is not the most efficient way. And I'm not sure that the Fed is sort of uniquely positioned to, to be a regulator. I mean, maybe we ought to think uh, more about keeping some of the Fed's roles separate. Where would you put it? 
I don't know. I guess the only thing that would be worse is creating yet another regulator, right? Right. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I like the idea um, of states being able to do it. And I, I get states, and um, we don't have, you know, despite some uh, protestations from the Fed, like, there is no federal payments regulator. Like, yes. that doesn't exist. That is done at the moment at the state level. The Fed runs payment systems, right, and regulates banks that are involved in almost all or found, form the basis for our payments activities. So I think if we think a lot uh, about how to regulate conflicts of interest in the private sector, it's not such a bad idea to think about that in the public sector context as well. Any audience questions? We've got one over here. You can just say your name and affiliation before you, uh, yeah. My name is Ryan Singer. Um, I run a venture capital advisor called Vex Capital. I used to run Bitcoin exchanges. Um, I was in the room for the founding of Tether. I think that um, it might be a little disingenuous to call it a flight from safety, given that the time that there was the big switch was when people were concerned about the convertibility of U.S. bank deposits. Uh, and so I think from a crypto perspective, a lot of people saw it as a flight to safety because Tether could pay out Bitcoin and U.S. things wouldn't. So I think the big question now is how do we address that the crypto market seems to be treating U.S. government exposure as a critically bad business risks to be avoided? Well, maybe I can take that at first. I'll just say agree to disagree. Um, <laughs> but, but um, like, yeah, I'm interested in the U.S. banking system being as solid as it uh, can be. And um, obviously this increase in interest rates um, has broken a couple of things. Um, uh, just given you know the portfolios that the banks were putting together in the um, super low interest um, era, uh, so you know it, it's like let's shore up the U.S. banking system. Um, Circle, we're not trying to disintermediate banks. We we like banks. Um, we think they're vital, you know, for economic um, activity in the states. Um, I will say. Uh, that people should start looking a little bit at Cantor Fitzgerald's relationship with Tether because they're essentially shadow banking them um, when they can't get access to U.S. banks because they don't follow rules. Um, and, uh, yeah, take a look. I'll just say one thing to that. I think this is a, it's a real concern, but I also think this is where maybe, the, um, maybe crypto diverges from... Crypto generally diverges from stable coins a little bit. Like I think, I think that you know, stable coins. Obviously, uh, there seems to be general consensus that some form of regulation is vital, urgent, etc. In in the crypto space, I think that you're seeing a ton of regulation. A lot of which is sort of not necessarily what crypto people would think is appropriate for crypto being applied. Most most notably, I think by the SEC, and I think that advanced technology and the impact of regulation on advanced technology. Don't use it. I mean, it says so in pretty much those words. And that is kind of a remarkable response from a regulator, uh, at least in, in the United States. Yeah, it is an interesting question about Tether, though. I, I talked to the CTO of them for a recent article I worked on. And I mean, they pointed to the DPEG event in March. And they said, you know, we've never really DPEGed in that way. So I do think there's a type of stability there that, again, when you look outside the US, people might see even with a lack of transparency, that as a, as a feature instead of a bug. Yeah, they have depegged um, you know, relatively severely. B by the way, like f in our depeg, 5% of USDC is traded on secondary markets, so it really doesn't take, uh, you know, it didn't take much that weekend, right? But it was restored within you know, two or three days because people knew that they would be made whole at the end of the day. So that's a very, very important um, distinguishing factor here. So they, I, I, I get it. They have their talking point. You know, we depegged. Um, but I think if you look a little bit uh, deeper be below the surface, they're for very different reasons. But I think there's also a larger 
point to be made here, and I think everybody understands the irony of a bank failure causing the DPEG of a stable coin. Um, that is the reverse of the narrative, right, that's been forwarded by um, a lot of policymakers, certainly by bank regulators, saying um, we're very pleased that we've kept crypto outside the banking system and stable coins as much as we can separate from the banking system because that keeps the banks safe. What it does, though, is it places the risk on American businesses, American consumers, and I think we should just take a step back and wonder, like, is that the purpose of our financial regulatory system? I don't, I don't think it is to keep banks safe at the expense of uh, the American economy and the American public. That seems slightly, slightly backwards. And, you know, of, of course, financial stability is important, but there are always going to be trade-offs. And I think, you know, the, the risk running from uh, a a medium-sized bank failure to uh, to stablecoins was kind of an interesting example of where um, protecting banks uh, may not be the best move all the time. And then uh, this is relevant for this this last question. I mean, talking about Tether's DPEG they had, which was obviously caused by the uh, stunning collapse of a different type of stablecoin, Terra. Uh, and we haven't really talked about algorithmic stable coins or other types of backed stable coins like commodity-backed stable coins. Obviously, they're once backed by gold, backed by oil in the case of Venezuela's ill-fated project. Uh, so this is a question from online. Do you think there's a place in the conversation about other types of backed stable coins, either commodity-backed ones, or even could algorithmic stable coins make a comeback? I mean, I don't think they're stable coins. They're, they're something else. They're like synthetic derivatives or, you know, they're a different type of instrument, uh, especially as uh, basically the legislation, not only in the United States defines it, but legislation in all these other jurisdictions who have moved forward that basically coalesce around the same standards. But the algorithmic stable coins um, remind me of uh, a saying that Warren Buffett has, um, beware of geeks bearing math. Like, it, you know, I mean, it's part of the reason why you have to uh, get legislation on the board right now. And I think it's why consumer protection advocates should be there, right? Uh, McHenry's bill is um, not only an American competitiveness bill, but it is a consumer protection bill. And, and same thing for Lummis Gillibrand stablecoin portion. Um, uh, Terra Luna would not have... Uh, had their names on the seats at Nats Park um, and been allowed to exist had we had this legislation in place. Every algorithmic stablecoin is going to come free with one free gift of an SEC inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think there's a, to, to Julie's point earlier, which I think is a really important one, like, Algorithmic stable coin. For joining us, this was a great conversation. I'm sure we could go for another hour and 15 minutes, uh, but unfortunately, we have to end. Um, we're going to take a 15 minute break. We'll be back at 11:45 a.m. Eastern Time for a panel called "Crypto Regulatory Uncertainty and U.S. Competitiveness," moderated by George Leonardo from Cat Hill Crypto. So, thanks again. Thank you.